song, we haven't sang that before, um, that came from heaven, and it's a Phil Wickham song. It is amazing. And if you get a chance, look up the video. It's fantastic. It really is. And just the message of there will be a day where we'll all be standing together worshiping the Lord. And that's a pretty incredible thought. It's going to be a pretty incredible thought. All right, I'll pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, I just pray that you would be glorified today at the reading of your Word. As we dig in and we hear the words that you want to speak to us, um, that you used your servant Paul to give us, uh, Lord, just pray that those words would sink down inside of us. We can take something away, or that we can uh, work into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. At a bed and breakfast just outside of London, there was a bishop who was sitting down to breakfast. And... As he's sitting there getting ready for breakfast, he hears this singing, this loud singing by a cook in the kitchen, and she's singing loudly and repeatedly, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the hymn, right? The old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so the host comes by and he says, man, your cook must be a really spiritual lady. And the host just kind of chuckles and he says, no, not really, we must be having hard-boiled eggs today. He said, what? He said, well, if we have soft-boiled eggs, she sings it through three times. If we have hard-boiled eggs, she sings the chorus through six times. So, sometimes things aren't always as they appear. Cook sounded very spiritual when, in reality, she was just going through the motions to accomplish a task. Um, religion can be like that, if we let it. Uh, going through the motions on the outside to look very spiritual. Um, and that's what we're going to really talk about, some of that today. Uh, what are the true marks of a believer? Um, because we have uh, been marked, not on the outside, we've been marked in here, on the inside, on our hearts as believers. Uh, and we have a real enemy, and he's very sneaky. And we're going to be talking a little bit about legals today. For those of you who are here with us, when we went through the book of Galatians, it's going to be a little bit similar to that. But we have an enemy who is more than happy to let us get caught up in religious rituals and traditions at the expense of relationship. He's willing to let us do that. If we, put, if we think rituals and religion is going to save us instead of relationship, and relationship is what it's all about. Um, and, you know, it should surprise us. He actually comes to us sometimes dressed as an angel of light. Uh, Paul is speaking about these false teachers, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light So it is no surprise if it is the servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness Their end will correspond to their deeds So Paul's going to tell the Philippian church pretty much the same thing that he told the Galatian church and that's to look out for these legalists uh, My uncle actually sent me a YouTube video this week and that was kind of the you know The context of the videos was all about false teachers and dangerous doctrines and it's amazing to me that some of these TV evangelists, what I'll call them, uh, have garnered such a following because sometimes what they're teaching is a lot of legalism. It's a lot of salvation by works. And guess what one of those works is? Giving. <laughs> right? Giving. Um, they want you to give and give. And the more you give, the more you'll be blessed. And instead of feeding the sheep, they ended up fleecing the sheep. Really, um, you look. The day I come in here in a three-piece suit, you guys can chuck me right out the door. <laughs> that won't happen. Paul says, "Look out for these guys. These guys are going to eat you up. They're not real Christians." 
Last week, Paul was talking about a few good men. He had two, two good men, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Timothy was his right-hand man. That was his protege. And every time we hear about discipleship, Timothy and Paul and their relationship is talked about because it was so unique. And Timothy was ready and willing. He was ready and willing to do anything that Paul wanted him to do. And Paul told him after he had discipled, he said, he said, you're able, you're ready and willing, and now you're able. You need to go fulfill your calling. And we need, we need to be those people that are ready and willing. Whenever God asks us to do something, whenever he impresses something on our heart, to be those that are ready and willing, and he will make us able to carry that out. Timothy got promoted because he was faithful. He was tested. He had a proven worth, is what Paul was telling the Philippian church. The other man was their very own Epaphroditus. Uh, he's the one that had bought the gift to bring to Paul um, at great you know, danger to himself. And he was going to see how he was doing in prison. And it was really only supposed to be a short stay, but it ended up being a long one because he got sick. And Paul says that he was ill even unto death, but God had mercy on him and healed him. And then we jumped into that topic of healing, uh, kind of a tough topic. Why do some people get healed and some people don't? And we walk through how sickness and sin in the Bible often get paired together. There are multiple verses in the Bible that pair sin and sickness because we need healing both physically and spiritually, more importantly, spiritually. Uh, multiple times it tells us that, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sins, but he also took our illnesses. Uh, he delivered us from the penalty of sin and sickness. We've been delivered from that, from the penalty. We are being delivered from the power of sin and sickness. The more we grow in our faith, the more we mature, the more we're able to overcome sin in our lives and understand that healing is a mercy that's granted by the Father. And one day we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin and sickness. It hasn't happened yet, but that's going to be an awesome day. We get my glorified body, Bob. <laughs> so how do we receive that physical healing? We talked about that because if we don't look at it from a biblical standpoint, it can really wreck our faith if we let it. And so we receive healing in the same way that we received our salvation, right? By grace, through faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we receive that and we believe in faith and then we just trust the sovereignty of God. And we pray until we receive the healing that we are seeking or until he gives us a peace that that's his will for our lives. And sometimes that's the case. Paul prayed three times. He said, I got a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would take it away from him. And on the third time, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes that's the answer. My grace is sufficient for you. And then we simply trust him. And that leads us to chapter three. Uh, quick refresher. Chapter one was all about having a single mind, right? Being single-minded towards Jesus. Chapter 2 that we just finished up was all about having a submitted mind, being submitted to Jesus. And as we move into chapter 3, Paul focuses on having a selfless mind. So single mind, submitted mind. So see, this is Pastor Trick. It all starts with S. Helps us remember it. It's really fun. All right. Our text today is Philippians chapter 3. We're just going to do verses 1 through 3 today. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I like the way that Paul says finally here. 
So he says finally, but he's only halfway through the letter. <laughs> Pretty much like a preacher, right? We're almost done. And then 30 minutes later. He's only halfway through the letter. But basically this transition means um, furthermore, or in addition to, is what he's trying to say. Uh, receive Epaphroditus, honor him, he's done his work honorably, um, he's fulfilled it, and I want you guys to rejoice in the Lord in case you forgot what this book is about, it's all about joy, I want you to rejoy, and then he wants them to, you know, furthermore, do these things that he's about ready to tell us. Uh, there was an evangelist back in the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, a guy by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday is my kind of guy because he was a professional baseball player turned evangelist. So kind of my kind of guy. I like Billy Sunday. And he had some interesting quotes. Here's a couple of them. These are attributed to Billy Sunday. It says, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. He said, temptation is the devil looking through the keyhole. Yielding is opening the door and inviting him in. And he said this about our Christian walk. Don't look as if your Christianity is hurting you. Don't look as if your Christianity is hurting you. The trouble is, is that a lot of men have just enough religion to make them miserable. <laughs> just enough to make them miserable. If there is no joy in your Christianity, then you have a leak in your Christianity. We're supposed to be joyful. If we have a hard time keeping our joy, uh, we got to pull on our boat, basically. <laughs> Uh, there are lots of things that challenge our joy, lots of things that challenge, but shouldn't steal our joy. And you could say, Nathan, things look pretty bleak right now. I mean, things are getting dark outside, and it doesn't look like there's any uh, hope on the horizon of them changing anytime soon. Uh, but happiness is dependent on our circumstances, but joy isn't. Uh, if you think that joy is dependent on your circumstances, then you have a problem. And his name is Paul. Because Paul had every reason to lose his joy. Listen to what he was writing about in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rods. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day in a drifted sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, Danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, as if there could be others, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul had a lot going on, and yet he still maintains his joy. He keeps writing to us about keep your joy. Our hope is in the one that we know has delivered us and is going to deliver us. So he had the right to lose his joy, but he did. He tells us to rejoice in the Lord. The only way that we can rejoice in the Lord is if we have a relationship with him. That's the only way that can happen. No relationship, no joy. So if you find yourself kind of anxious, kind of worried, living in fear, then we have to ask ourselves, how's our relationship? How's our relationship with the Father? Are we connected to the source of joy? Because it's really an act of will. It's a choice. Paul tells us, rejoice, do it. It's an act of will. Choose to obey the Lord. He'll give you a supernatural emotion. Joy is not a natural emotion, by the way. It's something that the Lord provides when we make a decision to be obedient to what he asks us to do. Biblical joy produces a deep confidence in the future that's based on a trust in the power and the purposes of God. It's based in his sovereignty, basically. 
That's what biblical joy is. And Paul repeats himself a lot in his letters. You notice this? He repeats himself a lot. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Uh, I don't want to pick on anybody, so I'll pick on myself. Uh, when I was a teenager, right, if I had a coach or a parent who was trying to tell me something, and I knew what they were going to say, then I might, you know, roll my eyes or just kind of tune out altogether because I could finish their sentence. And I, I thought I knew it all. But if they were trying to warn me or direct me, they were trying to get a desired outcome over and over again. If you ask any athlete, if you ask any musician, the more repetition you have, the more natural it becomes. It becomes a natural tendency. So he keeps telling them over and over again, keep doing these things, and it will become a natural tendency. That's why a good instructor repeats himself. Let me say that again. <laughs> Peter does the second thing. He does the same thing as Paul does here, actually. It's in 2 Peter 1, 12 through 14. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body, and the word he uses there is tent, as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So even Peter says, I will always remind you, always. That's my job, that's my purpose, that's what Jesus has given me to do, is to remind you, and we need to remind each other too. Um, Paul says, it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. He starts with this very encouraging line, to rejoice. Uh, he says, hey, it's not a big deal for me, it's good for you guys, you guys need to rejoice, and then bam, he hits them with some kind of flowery language here. He's kind of giving them something shocking, something to jar them, to wake them up get their attention. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's basically, I love you guys. Timothy and Epaphroditus, man, they served me well. In fact, I'm going to send them back to you so you guys receive them. They did a good job. Um, and then I'm going to, you know, write these things to you again. I'm going to tell you, it's not a problem for me. It's good for you guys. You need to recapture your joy and beware of the dogs. <laughs> beware of it. It doesn't seem to fit, but he's trying to shock them to get their, uh, to get their attention to make a point. Uh, I read this story about this group of girls at a junior high. And what they would do is they would go into the bathroom and they had their lipstick and they would put their lipstick on and then they would all kiss the mirror and there would be these lip marks all over the mirror. And the principal found out about it and he found out who these girls were and he sat them down and he's like, listen, girls can't do that, you know, and here's the reason why. Do you think that worked? No, that didn't work. And it happened again, and so he got them all, and he said, let's go. And so he took them all into the bathroom, and he says, okay, girls, I told you not to do this. We're here again. I want to show you how difficult this is to clean all this off of the mirrors. And so the janitor was in there, too, and he said, listen, go ahead. Show them how difficult it is to clean it off. And so he had one of those big-handled mops, and he dunked it in the toilet, and then he started cleaning the mirror with it. They never had that problem again. Trying to make a very vivid point. He used a very graphic illustration. And that's what Paul's doing here. Three times he says it. He says, look out, look out, look out. First he calls them dogs. Now, we just got a puppy a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Luna, she's the puppy, and then there's Bucky. He's our he's our we've had him for about three years. And she's very much a puppy. Yeah, she's she's a lot of energy. And I don't think Buck has completely recovered yet 
from having her around. He's quite depressed, actually. He was pretty excited day one. He thought it was great. Day two, he's like, why are you still here? <laughs> and he's still like that. He's kind of bummed. But it's a lot of fun. But this is not what Paul is talking about. Um, in those days, dogs were mangy and filthy, and they were scavengers. If anything, they were used as guard dogs for protection. And that's the reason why, if you guys have been watching The Chosen, uh, Matthew has a dog. He's got this big black dog, and it's like really out of place. And everybody sees him, they're like, why do you have a dog? You know, like, they tell his parents he's got a dog. Why? His dogs were dirty. They were scavengers. It was not a term of endearment. This was very derogatory. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy. This is Leviticus Deuteronomy. Numbers Deuteronomy. I'm going to get numbers. 23, 17. All right. Some of that graphic language. 23, 17. One more. Okay. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So, dirty scavengers, male cult prostitutes, and this was also a term that the Jewish people used for anybody who wasn't Jewish. If you were a Gentile, they would call you a dog. So, very derogatory term. As a matter of fact, the Jewish men would have a prayer where they would recite, and they would say, Thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a woman, a slave, or a dog. Basically a Gentile. Thank you, you haven't made me a woman, a slave, or a dog. It's not a real Christian prayer. But that's what they thought of Gentiles, and they called them dogs. And he said, look out for the evildoers. These are the guys who think they're doing the Lord's work. They think they're doing the Lord's work, uh, but in reality, they're workers of evil. And Paul knew a little bit about this because he thought he was doing the Lord's work when he was persecuting the church. When he was dragging people out of houses and putting them in jail and standing by while they were being stoned and martyred. And he thought he was doing righteous work when in reality, and when Jesus got a hold of him, he realized he was actually working evil against the Lord. So, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, Paul is referring to circumcision, to the physical act of circumcision, the cutting away. And this was the symbol, the covenant that God had made in the Old Testament with his people. You guys are supposed to be set apart. This will be a mark on you physically. And it just was a symbolic way of saying, you know, this is how severely sin needs to be dealt with. Your flesh needs to be dealt with all the way down to the root. And it needs to be gotten rid of. And now, thankfully, Jesus' blood covers our sin. We don't have to go through lots of religious rituals and hoops. Uh, it was serious business. It was bloody. It was messy. Uh, but now Jesus' blood in the new covenant covers us. That's why uh, Paul's calling these guys evil workers and mutilators. Uh, salvation, I said earlier, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, not through works. But these, these dogs, these legalists, were pushing salvation by works. And we read this back in Galatians 5. Paul was telling the church in Galatians, he said, listen, these guys are so into circumcision, I wish they'd just go all the way. I wish they'd just emasculate themselves. Like, I wish they would do that because I'm sick and tired of them. They're coming in after I leave, 
and they're preaching all of this legalism. They say, listen, it's nice that you guys believe in Jesus, that's fine, but if you really want to be spiritual, you need to keep the law. You need to keep the law, you need to be circumcised. And they would dog him everywhere he went. And these were some of the things that Paul would almost get killed for multiple times when he would say that. Uh, because under the law, if you weren't circumcised, you were cut off from your people. That's how serious it was. This is part of the covenant. If you're not going to be circumcised, you're cut off from these people. But any outward act is meaningless if it doesn't reflect a transformed heart. It doesn't matter what we do on the outside. If it doesn't change in here, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to make a difference eternity in eternity. We don't have a relationship. You can do all of the religious things you want. Because if we try to keep the law, if we try to add to it, then we're going to be judged by it. And none of us can keep it. In Romans 2, verse 25, Paul writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's not a mark in our flesh, it's a mark in our heart. We can easily fall into a works-based, performance-based uh, you know, religion, and lose sight of relationship. There really are only two religions in the world. People say there's lots of religions, lots of ways to God, but there's really only two. There is the works-based, if I work harder, I can achieve it. That's every other religion in the world. If I work harder, if I do certain things, I can achieve it. And then there's the other one that says, without him, I can do nothing. It's not about human achievement. It's about divine accomplishment. Amen. It's what he's done, not what we can do. That's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why he got up and came to church. Um, because of our salvation, because of what he's done, he came to do that we could not do. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision doesn't want to inflict pain. Uh, just as he uses three descriptions of these legalizers, he calls them dogs, evil workers, and um, mutilators, thank you. Then he's going to use three descriptions of people who are true believers. The first is we worship by the Spirit. The second is we glory in Christ. And the third is we put no confidence in the flesh. True believers are those who worship in the Spirit. Uh, in John 4, we find Jesus behind enemy lines, so to speak. Uh, he's in the region of Samaria. And just in case you're not familiar with how the Jews and the Samaritans got along, they hated each other. Sorry, announcement. In the chapel at 11 o'clock. In the chapel at 11 o'clock. You can also watch on the TV channel 2. On the TV channel 2. It's okay. John 4, we find Jesus in Samaria. The Samaritans and the Jews hated one another, and they called the Samaritans half-breeds, because what had happened is when the Jews were hauled off to Babylon in captivity, they left some of the people there, and they ended up intermarrying with the surrounding people, which was a big no-no. So when they came back, they called them half-breeds. They hated each other. And if you were a good Jew, you would not even go through Samaria. You would cross all the way around. If you wanted to get from Nazareth in the north all the way to Jerusalem in the south, you would travel all the way around. 
But Jesus took his disciples right through Samaria because he had an appointment with a woman at a well. You might remember that story. He starts talking to this woman in the heat of the day. It's in the middle of the day. And here she comes, which is very unusual because drawing water was the job of the women. And they would come early in the day or late in the day. They would come in the cool of the day. They wouldn't come in the middle of the day. But she shows up because she couldn't be seen with the other women because she was living a sinful lifestyle. And Jesus went there and talked directly to her. And through that conversation, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good perception. They start talking about worship. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And he said, where woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You will worship what you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those of the true circumcision worship in spirit and truth, not in human traditions. The beautiful thing is we can worship anywhere. We can worship anywhere. Uh, this conversation in modern day is something like, you know, where do you guys go to church? Well, I go to church here. Well, I go to a church here. Well, you guys raise your hands, you know, do you guys sing hymns? You guys use drums? It's kind of that kind of conversation. We get more wrapped up in the physical where and the practical how than the physical, which is in the spirit, and the practical, which is in the truth. Everything needs to center around Jesus. That's why all the worship songs that we sing have Jesus at the center. I really want them to be songs that if he was standing here in front of us, they would be songs that we would sing. There's a time for corporate, you know, edification, but I love songs that just put him at the center. That's what we want to do. And we're all worshipers. Everybody in the world is a worshiper to some degree or another. We are built for worship. We all worship something. Every culture throughout history has worshipped someone or something. And all music is worship. Uh, first time I heard that, I was like, are you kidding me? But even secular music is worship because anything that we elevate or glorify becomes an object of worship. And so you can say that as a worship of some kind. Satan wanted the worship for himself. That's what he wanted. Um, there is, and Bible scholars, I've read a bunch of stuff that suggests that he was actually the worship leader in heaven. And that was his job. That was Lucifer's job, was to lead worship. And after a while, he came to the conclusion, like, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm leading worship. I think I deserve some worship. And he became filled with pride. And that's when he fell. So anything that we elevate above Jesus is an idol um, and he is more than willing to let us elevate things in fact he tries to distract you and me to get us to elevate or to glorify anything above jesus um, our whole lives every aspect are to be a worship unto the lord and we were singing about it you know our lives and we want our lives to be um, a worship an example a sacrifice to the lord um, may sound kind of weird but basically what that means is Nothing in our lives should be elevated or glorified or magnified above Jesus. That should be the center of what we're about. Paul said it earlier in this book, News in chapter 1. He said, whether in life or in death, doesn't matter. Christ will be glorified in my body. Doesn't matter whether I'm living, whether I'm dying. Christ will be glorified in my body. And all our, our lives should elevate him. Um, not just on Sundays. True worshipers love Jesus, that's pretty obvious, but that's where it has to start. Um, we can go through the motions of Christianity. We can be 
baptized. We can come to church. We can go to small groups. Um, we can even serve in kids ministry. But if we lose relationship, all those things are external. They're not internal. And so all those things can be works-based. It has to lead to a relationship. It needs to spring out of salvation, but it's not the basis for our salvation. Um, I wear a ring on my finger, and if somebody sees the ring on my finger, then they would assume that I am married. There is someone who I am committed to. And the ring is important. If I took the ring off, then Alicia would question my commitment to her. And then we would have a really interesting conversation. <laughs> um, the ring is important, but it's not as important as the relationship. It is the external sign, but not the internal commitment. It points to the reality of a relationship. True believers also glory in Christ. To glory in Christ is basically to boast in the Lord, to brag on Him, to make Him the center. Um, a few verses for you to consider as the scriptures are very clear on who and what we should be boasting in. These are kind of rapid fire here. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love, who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Psalm 34, 2. King David says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. And then Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So we brag, we boast about who he is and what he's done. It's a little bit of evangelism, um, but we're talking about how good he is, not how good we're doing at living our best life now. Right. The phrase glory in Christ means to continually glory in Christ, not just a one time event. It's not we got saved, we gloried in Christ, we boasted about him. And then that's it for the rest of our lives. It's the continual process. Um, we should live lives. As we mature, we should live lives of increasing moral purity. But just living morally doesn't mean that you're saved. But as we mature, we should do these things and boast in the Lord. It's about the relationship, not just about the ring. Uh, there was a man in Acts 8. His name was Simon the Sorcerer. And this guy was performing all kinds of magic tricks. And people said that he had the power of the gods in him. And he was making himself into somebody great. And then Philip the disciple came to town and he was preaching the word. And it, Philip's one of my favorite people in The Chosen. He, is, he looks like a hippie, but he's a fantastic character. And he's one that was following John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist said, you need to go follow Jesus. Like, he's the main event. And so he comes and joins. And it's just a really interesting dynamic because he's already been through all of this stuff. And all the disciples are freaking out. They're like, what's going on? And he's like, it's going to get worse. <laughs> I've seen it. It's going to get worse. Just get ready. He's one of my favorite characters. But he is preaching the gospel. He says lots of people believe. Simon the sorcerer believed. And he started following Philip, looking at all the miracles that were taking place. And then Peter and John come down. Peter and John, the head honchos, come down from headquarters because they want to see these guys. They want to be able to lay hands on them, pray for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And when Simon witnesses them getting the Holy Spirit, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, he goes to Peter and he says, hey, how much? How much can I pay you so I can get this power? See, he wasn't changed internally. He's still looking for power for himself. He still wanted to be somebody great. He still wanted to boast in himself. And this is what Peter said to him because his heart wasn't right. He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Peter nailed it, because he was in it for himself, not for a relationship. And then Simon asked Peter to pray for him so that he may not experience the consequences of his actions. But he still wasn't worried about this inner conviction, this relationship. He was still more concerned about what might happen to him. His external consequences, his outward appearance, but no inward conviction. And then lastly, no confidence in the flesh. Paul writes in Romans 7.18, he writes, In me dwells no good thing. That is in my flesh. In me dwells no good thing. Uh, sinful humanity has no grounds for confidence between a holy God and us. No grounds for confidence before a holy God except in Jesus Christ. Only true repentance leads to salvation. Fake repentance um, is more concerned with conduct. It's more concerned with conduct, not with an internal condition and how it might affect relationship. That's what true repentance is, and that's what, re what leads to salvation. I'm going to harken back to Galatians here. If we're trying to earn salvation by works, then what we're saying is that the work of Jesus on the cross wasn't good enough. That it wasn't enough, and that we need to add to it. We have to complete or finish it on our own. Um, I read this story, um, and I, you guys went to Colorado here um, a few weeks ago, right? You guys drove out to Colorado. So let's say you guys, I'm sure you stopped out in western Kansas somewhere for gas. Um, and if you, if you stop for gas and you saw some guy rolling into the gas station pushing his brand new Corvette. And he's pushing his brand new Corvette, you would probably assume that he ran out of gas. And you probably look at him and you'd be like, it's a nice car, did you run out of gas? He's like, oh no, I'm just out enjoying my new car. My dad bought it for me, it's brand new. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's a great car. Are you driving it? No, I'm, I'm pushing it. I mean, it's the least I can do. My father bought me this car, it's fantastic, and I've just, I've been pushing it. That's the least I can, it's exhausting, you know, I'm tired, but uh, it's the least I can do. And Jeff might say, uh, how, how long have you pushed that car? I'll push it a couple hundred miles. I mean, it's been difficult, but it's worth it, right? Because it's a free gift from my father. And Jeff would probably say, get in the car. <laughs> get in the car. Get in the driver's seat because I'm going to drive. <laughs> it's a for sale, yes. And then we cruise down the highway. 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, right? Western Kansas, nobody's paying attention. And then it would all start to come together. Now, that's a silly example of you know, a car that symbolizes salvation that's been given to us for free by the Father. But sometimes we feel like getting the car to the destination is our responsibility, but it's not. The car's free. All you got to do is get inside. The Holy Spirit powers the car and it takes you all the way to heaven. That's the analogy. We don't have to do it. It's kind of as silly as pushing a car. So, um, you know, when we first get saved, we're blown away by God's grace, by his goodness, and the fact that he could love us in our sinful condition. Um, but over time, as we mature and we start reading things and we start listening to podcasts or we start you know, getting recommendations from people, we start thinking, listen, I've been doing this a while. I need to start doing more. Like if I'm going to be a real Christian, I need to start serving more. I need to be doing more. I feel like I'm not doing enough. And we may even look at new believers and they're all excited and they've got, they're very zealous and they're passionate. We look at them, we start to think, yeah, that'll wear off. Which is kind of sad. It's not supposed to wear off. It's supposed to maintain our joy. It's not supposed to be about works. 
Uh, I read this, Galatians 3.3, and I read this in the message translation. I just that says it uh, quite perfectly, so I wanted to read it in this translation. Paul says, let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God, or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what has begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep it up. It's a very frank way of saying, guys, get it together. It's not about works. You can't complete it on your own. The works of Jesus were enough. Good works are a byproduct of that relationship, but they're not the basis of our salvation. Um, you know, once we live in that works-based mentality, we are very insecure. We're very insecure about our status, our relationship with Jesus, because we're wondering, like, I, I haven't done anything. I mean, I've missed my Bible reading for like a week. Is God mad at me? No, he's not mad at you. He doesn't love you anymore if you read it seven days in a row. He doesn't love you any less if you miss it for a few days, or a week, or a month, or a year. He still loves you. He wants relationship with you. He wants you to come back together. He wants to be able to visit with you. But it's not the status of our relationship with him. Um, I'd said it on Wednesday at John's service. I said this. John had a relationship with Jesus. He didn't just know about Jesus. He knew Jesus. And it's the walking with that makes the eternal difference, not just the knowing. Um, beware of the dogs. Beware of the legalists and those who would mutilate the gospel and steal your joy by steering it away from Jesus. Um, I read about a young man. He was determined to win the affections of a young lady, even though she wouldn't talk to him anymore. She wouldn't talk to him anymore. So, okay, I know how I'll work my way in. I'll just write her a letter. I'll write her these love letters, and the more I write, the more I'll wear her down, and she'll come to see how passionate I am about her. And so he started writing these letters, a love letter every day uh, that was getting delivered to her house, and still no response. So, okay, I'll, uh, I'll up the end. I'll start doing even more. So he starts writing multiple notes a day and sending flowers, doing all of this stuff. And you know what happened? She ended up marrying the mailman. <laughs> <laughs> all these love letters, all these notes. She didn't care about him. They didn't have a relationship. She started a relationship with the mailman because he was there every day. <laughs> all right, we really will end with this. Finally, we will end with this. So... Um, worship team wants to come up and we can bring the kids in. Um, in Mark 10, we find Jesus uh, getting ready to leave another city. He's preached there, he's taught there, he's done some miracles, and he's getting ready to leave. And there is a young man that runs up to Jesus before he leaves. And he runs up to him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Like, what, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus starts listing off some of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but it's interesting because he leaves one out. And this young, he's called a rich young ruler. And he said, well, I've, I've kept all these since my youth. Like, I've, I've been keeping the rules. That's been my goal. What else do I need to do? And it says that when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. He's like, and you, you, your heart is right. You're after the right thing. You're doing the works. But it's about relationship. So I tell you what, why don't you get rid of all those things and come follow me? Like, it's good that you're doing the works, but let's have relationship. And he says, why don't you follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And it says, unfortunately, that he left sorrowful because he had great possessions. He was somebody who was very rich and had a lot of authority, and he couldn't leave that 
for a relationship. He just wanted to follow the rules, but he didn't want to go all the way in. And that's what we're called to. Um, now that is, you know, not only a story about not letting the world get the better of us, not getting too tangled up in the things of the world, but also not becoming legalistic in our thinking. It's about relationship, not about the things that we do. Um, doesn't mean that we should go sell everything necessarily, but it is that relationship needs to be the focus of our lives. It needs to be a life of worship. So these are the true marks of the Christian. Um, don't be, don't be dogged by legalists, people that want to put a trip on you. And you know that's not the case most of the time. Most of the time, it's the enemy whispering in our ear, or even sometimes other believers saying, you know, we've got to be doing more. Become insecure in our relationship father um, but we need to worship in the spirit we can worship anywhere our lives need to be worship unto him and we need to boast in the lord that's the only thing we, you know we boast a lot in this world a lot of people boast they brag um, about what they have or what, what they're doing about what they've accomplished when we get to heaven nobody will be boasting we'll just be incredibly amazed at what he's done for us and then we put no confidence in our flesh. We know that in us dwells no good thing. Amen? So, challenge this week. Live in freedom. Live in the freedom of grace, not in legalism. Father, I just pray that as we stand to worship you one more time, Lord, that we would just live in the freedom that you provide. That we wouldn't succumb to legalism. That we wouldn't think that it's about doing more or performing better to get into your good graces. What you did was enough. Pay for our sin. You brought us into your presence. You made us sons and daughters. That's everything we need. It's everything we need. And we worship not out of compulsion, but because we love you, because of what you've done for us. We thank you. With joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty force.